The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's something else, Dagny. There was a call just now from the Rio Norte branch in Colorado. Richard McNamara never showed up for work. We'll go find him. And we looked. And we found a note. What did it say? It said, who is John Galt? What does that mean? It was explained to me once. Don't ask questions nobody could answer. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 14th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Our guest today is Mark Pellegrino. Now, a lot of people will recognize Mark uh, because he's an American actor. Over the last 35 years, he's had a successful career in film and television. Too numerous to mention the shows that he's been on, but I'll mention a few just to jog somebody's memory out there who doesn't really recognize Mark for the star that he is. Supernatural, he plays Lucifer. Uh, The Tomorrow People, uh, a show that I particularly enjoyed considering I grew up with the British version of that cornball type wow. of show back in the 70s, I think it was. Uh, Castle, Chuck, CSI Miami, Dexter, Grimm, and uh, again, too many to mention over 35-year successful career. However, on this show, Just Right Media, we talked to people about their philosophy, and what struck me about Mark was that he is an objectivist. Wikipedia calls him an, an adherent of objectivism though I don't know what the right word would be, follower, adherent, or just simply objectivist. And he's also the co-founder of the American Capitalist Party. So, Mark, welcome, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to meet you, too. Robert's interview with Mark was originally released last week on Just Right's video media platforms, and today our theme is largely focused on the political and philosophical part of their discussion. But there were many more topics they discussed, including the influence of objectivism on personal and family life, the effects of atheism and religion on politics, the role of aesthetics, Mark's experiences as an actor, and much more. You can watch their entire discussion on Just Right's various video platforms, including YouTube, Rumble, and BitChute. And of course, in addition to the part of their discussion featured here today, we have a lot more informative and fun discussions all about Ayn Rand, objectivism, freedom, capitalism, and political parties organizing to offer voters in their jurisdictions a freedom choice at the polls. It all begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts, including the complete video interview between Robert and Mark Pellegrino. As always... Your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Let's talk about the Capitalist Party, which uh, you you co-founded. And this is an election year in the United States, Uh, except for 
one instance, which I'll get to in a second, Ayn Rand was very much in favor of the America's two-party system, the Democrats and the Republicans. And she sort of rejected out of hand any third parties. However, in a column that she wrote for the Los Angeles Times, and you can get it in the Ayn Rand columns published by Second Renaissance Books, in an article she called Just Suppose, written in 1962, she uh, wrote about a fictional free market capitalist political party she called Party X. Now she hoped that the Republican Party would adopt the values of Party X, which she basically describes in that article as uh, being pro-capitalist, um, the separation of the economy from the state but of course, that wish never came true. And she thought that that party would garner the attention of the middle class and would, would get to victory. And so with that exception to the two-party system, this fictional party X, she was always very much on the side of the Republicans, some Republicans. Gerald Ford, she, she spoke highly of as an honest man. Richard Nixon as well. Barry Goldwater. Yeah. I wouldn't have considered Richard Nixon a conservative or, um, I mean, a a Republican, sure, but definitely not a Republican of her stripe, I would imagine. No, 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 of course not. Uh, There was something in the man that she admired before Mm. he actually Mm. became. Maybe his his anti-communism, maybe his anti-communist stand. Possibly, yeah. So she always went on to the Republican side. She hated Ronald Reagan because of his religious views and his opposing of abortion for women and women's rights in that regard. She really did not like that man because to oppose those kinds of rights meant that he had no idea of what a right meant. And so it's interesting to see that, okay, this third party, this party X, this capitalist party now, is your party Party X, this party in waiting, waiting for the cultural shift that's necessary for the middle class to say, enough of the rhinos, enough of the Dems, let's separate the economy from the state. And um, by the way, that's not the only platform that you have, of course, is economic. There are many more uh, planks to your platform than that. But are you Party X? Is capitalism party of the Party Mm -hmm. X that Ayn Rand talks about? Um, I, I think we may be. Um, I, I wanted to say really quickly, I just did a reality check entitled The Illusion of the Two-Party System. So uh, I can see why Rand would, would think that there, can, there are only two parties, because there's basically two, only two ways of morally organizing a society. There's the collectivist way and there's the individualist way. The problem is that there can be no bridge between the two. There can be no compromise between the two in the same way that an individual cannot live with two conflicting moral codes. Um, society can't either. So in, in my view, it always tends towards one or the other. Um, and that explains long periods of, of dominance of particular elected a more or less individualist perspective for a time from the founding maybe to the to, to the mid 1830s. And then as, as collectivism began to seep into the culture, we have the dominance of co- collectivism and then the merging of the two parties into a more or less collectivist stance. So there is a vacuum there today where this party X can come in. And uh, if, 
if if anything, I think you know all the horror that the left has been wreaking on on uh, the havoc that they've been wreaking on society over the last two and a half, three years, especially, and even through the four years of uh, Trump's presidency has been a godsend because lots of thinking liberals have jettisoned uh, the Democratic Party and and the left and are looking for a, a new anchor somewhere, a new moral political anchor that they can uh, attach themselves to. So the time is right for something like capitalism. Um, the question is, can we do it? Um, when I first uh, helped create this party, I approached somebody in Denver, an objectivist who had run on a third party platform and did relatively well, but he was against the idea uh, because he got attacked by both parties um, who have more or less created a system where um, they have a legal monopoly on the political system and uh, they make you pay for entering into, into their world. It's a very dishonest and corrupt system. Uh, so we're going to have to overcome the, the party machines that are the Democratic and Republican parties now. And, uh, and that means somebody in, on the ground, probably in a local election who can adopt this and start asserting this party X into the world as more than just an abstract platform, but as a, as a real thing. And I think we do have the, the space for that now. I would uh, direct people listening to this and viewing it to go to the AmericanCapitalistParty.com where you'll see um, the platform and policies that have been put together for that party. And I would have, I would endorse it wholeheartedly, except I'm a Canadian, so <laughs> I'd be interfering in your politics. By the way, speaking of um, Canadian politics, I'm a member and I've fully endorsed the People's Party of Canada with Maxime Bernier, who, by the way, when was asked if he was on a deserted island by himself, what books would he have would like to have taken there? And I think one of his uh, was The Fountainhead. Mm. And uh, also in that respect, um, when I was in Ontario, right now I'm in New Brunswick, but when I was in Ontario for 35 years, I worked for a party called the Freedom Party of Ontario. And we hosted um, Yaron Brook to come up to Toronto to talk, as well as Rita Parnabasu and um, Andrew Bernstein, who is an advisor to the Capitalist Party. And the people involved with the Freedom Party of Ontario, not all, but... Um, most on the executive are objectivists, I would, I would say. And so that brings me to a question. Is, is Capitalist Party a good name for a party that has platform planks that cross all spheres of living? And that would not just be economics, which is what capitalism is, but you have platform planks on abortion, on immigration, on drugs, on gay marriage, and things of that nature that um, I would agree with, obviously. But obviously, you've got the name now. You've chosen it. But wouldn't a freedom party of, of America be a better name because it encompasses all aspects of living life? Well, um that may be monopolized by libertarians. And I think there is something like a peace and freedom party in America. It's, to me, freedom is a corollary of something else. 
And you're right, capitalism is a difficult name, just like selfishness is a, is a difficult label. And when we were thinking about this third party thing, we decided on capitalism, I think for the same reason Rand decided to name her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, and not call it something else. Granted, selfishness uh, is, has been a part of the uh, English lexicon for a while, and capitalism is, a, is an invention of Marxism. It's, it definitely comes from under the coats of the enemy of the free market himself. So in hindsight, I look at that and chafe a little bit at, at the fact that um, we pick something that was named by the enemy of, of the free market system. But I still think that People need to know that uh, capitalism is, is more than an economic system. It's a social, moral uh, organization. It's, it's a way of organizing society that's bound up inextricably with values, bound up inextricably with, with morality. As objectivists, we have a, that unique take on capitalism that we don't, we don't just talk about why, why it's good on a practical level. We talk about why it's good on a moral level and consequently works on a, on a practical level because it's good on a moral level. So, you know, reading Deirdre McCloskey, it made me think of, you know, something with respect to innovism, you know, uh, as a, as a new name for the party, but I think we'll stick with capitalism because it's in your face. It makes a lot of people mad. And uh, there's something about that adjective that could be a conversation start. So, yeah, I think, I think I remember what Rand said when asked, why did you call your book The Virtue of Selfishness? And she said something to the effect of, for the very reason why you had to ask that question. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, it rankled you, right? And yet made you think about the terms. In fact, Ayn Rand's exact quote was, quote, why do you use the word selfishness to denote virtuous qualities of character when that word antagonizes so many people to whom it does not mean the things you mean? To those who ask it, my answer is, for the reason that makes you afraid of it. And to that answer, she added, It is not a mere semantic issue nor a matter of arbitrary choice. The meanings ascribed in popular usage to the word selfishness is not merely wrong. It represents a devastating intellectual package deal which is responsible more than any other single factor for the arrested moral development of mankind. End quote. Think about that. That a single word, a single concept, the word selfishness, could possibly be cited as the primary cause of mankind's arrested moral development. Robert and Mark will return just a little later in the show, but not until after our upcoming bumper break, followed by another directly related discussion to our theme, featuring none other than the Ayn Rand Institute's Yaron Brook, who has also been a guest on this show in the past. I should point out that even though all of the voices you hear on today's show may be fans of Ayn Rand, don't assume that they always agree on how to interpret Rand's works. For example, on both sides of our upcoming bumper break, you'll be hearing the voice of YouTuber and blogger Stefan Molyneux from a commentary he delivered way back on June 23, 2007. And that's followed by YouTuber and Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever, who a few days later, on June 29, juxtaposed Molyneux's original comments with his own rebuttals. And here's how that went. Here's the challenge, I think, that's in, uh, in Ayn Rand. So, a man has no automatic code of survival, says Ayn Rand, which 
raises the need to think and to reason, which is great. But then she says that the uh, immoral or irrational people are only capable of pain, which means that human beings do have an inbuilt uh, knowledge of what to do, right? But if human beings don't have any instincts which tell them right from wrong, why would somebody doing wrong be capable of nothing but pain? That's, that's a total contradiction, and it's a pretty core contradiction. There's no contradiction there. You say that if man has no instincts, then he needs rationality in order to be happy. Fine. It does not logically follow that in the absence of rationality, you need an instinct in order to find unhappiness or to find pain. All you have to do to experience pain is, for example, sit on a beach, think nothing, have no instincts, and eventually you will suffer pain, the pain of hunger. Pain is a default. Suffering is the default of not choosing to live, not choosing to think. You don't have to go looking for it. It comes for you. All right? That's the point of her philosophy. You don't need an instinct to find pain. It finds you as a matter of natural course. It's the natural course of death. Pain and death are the default occurrence. That's what happens when you don't choose uh, rational pursuit of life and happiness. By default, you suffer and you die. That's the whole point of her philosophy. When you're a philosopher, you have to say to people, why should you be good? The, the question is, how do you deal with people who have no conscience, right? The real challenge is dealing with the sociopaths, right? Dealing with the sociopaths. And that's, of course, my, my sticking point in the way that I've tried to solve uh, issues in terms of ethics. When you're a philosopher, you don't need to ask, you know, why should you be good? You need to ask, why should I be good? Philosophy is a discovery for how to run one's own life, not to, of how to convince others. To run theirs. You say that the real problem is sociopaths. You say that they don't feel pain so they don't change. In effect you're saying that the job of a philosopher is to try and come up with a way to convince sociopaths not to be sociopathic. To convince the irrational not to be irrational but to accept rationality as a, as a mode of life or the only way to live. That's not. It can't rationally be the standard by which a philosophy is judged. The job of a philosopher is not to convince irrational people to be rational. The job of a philosopher is to discover what is true about the facts of reality, how he knows it, and how he should live given the facts of nature, given the facts of reality. It's not about proving to the irrational that you're right about the facts of reality or about the way in which uh, people know the facts of reality or about how you should live. If the irrational want to die, that doesn't mean that your philosophy is wrong. If the irrational refuse to act in ways that allow them to live, that's not a reflection on your philosophy. That's a reflection on their own minds and on themselves, on their own philosophy. The possibility that an irrational person might never cease to be irrational, that, a, that an irrational person might not agree with Rand, does not mean that Rand's philosophy is therefore flawed. You don't judge a philosophy's soundness by, you know, whether Charles Manson agrees with it or agrees to live by it. Uh, sociopaths don't change their behavior because they don't experience pain. They experience a flush of power and of dominance at a purely basic bio base biological level. What is it? George Bush uh, obviously enjoys the exercise of power, ran for re-election, uh, you know, is not giving it up. So he's not experiencing 
pain, in fact, he's experiencing pleasure through the exercise of power. The pain and pleasure principle is not a basis for ethics. Right? It, it makes them subjective. Right? So again, this is a challenge, I think, in, in the Randian ethics at its sort of particular base. Your, your criticism of pain and pleasure not being the basis for morality is sound. But it's also true that it was not the basis for Rand's system either. Rand did not base her system of ethics on pain and pleasure. She based it on life and death. Rand distinguishes between pleasure on the one hand and happiness on the other. I don't think you've made that distinction, or at least you haven't recognized it, or I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem throughout your video that you're recognizing that distinction. To Rand, pleasure is a sensation. It can be experienced whether you're rational or irrational. Two people having sex can have great, you know, feelings, great sensations. Even if um, they totally lack any happiness in the sexual act. Pleasure is a matter of the senses. Happiness, as Rand defines it, is a matter of cognition. It's an emotion. It's the result of what you think and how you act and how you experience the world as a result. It's not the bare sensations of a thrill or the rush of adrenaline or the, you know, the, the great feeling of having one's hair stroked or something. Sensation is one thing, cognition is another, pleasure is one thing, happiness is another. I think you're confusing purpose and value. In Rand's system of ethics, one's highest value is life, not happiness. And one's highest purpose is happiness, not life. Uh, it's not the case that Rand has a hedonistic system. A hedonistic system would say the highest value is pleasure or happiness or something along those lines. Probably pleasure, not happiness. But Rand is not saying that. Rand is saying life is the highest value, happiness the purpose. So to critique her system as though she's saying that you know pain and pleasure are the basis for right and wrong is, is false. It's not warranted. That's not what she says anywhere, anywhere in her books. It's not a criticism of her philosophy. Now, coming up next, the first voice you are about to hear is that of the late Ted Harrelson, who was a member of Freedom Party's provincial executive and who served as the master of ceremonies at an event held at the University of Toronto back on a beautiful warm spring day of May 6, 2013. The featured speaker was the Ayn Rand Institute's Yaron Brook, and the theme of his discussion was all about the morality of capitalism. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Many thanks go out to the people who organized this talk tonight, the Toronto Objectivist Committee, yes. and the Freedom Party of Ontario. The organizers for the Toronto Objectivist Committee are Stephanie Bond, Conrad Nagowski, Mark Wickens, and myself. And Thank you again for the Freedom Party's professional help. The leader, Paul McKeever, Robert Metz, Robert Vaughn, who's on technical tonight, and Mary Lou Ambrosio, who did a great hand in helping with the media. Dr. Yaron Brook received his MBA and PhD in finance at the University of Texas. He is the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute, a columnist at Forbes.com, and his articles have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Investors Business Daily, and many other publications, including the Sun Media Today. 
and a few others. He is a frequent guest on national radio and television programs and is a contributing editor, author of books and op-ed articles. Dr. Brooke is co-author with ARI fellow Don Watkins of the national bestseller, Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government, the books that you've purchased tonight or you see outside here. A former finance professor, he speaks internationally on such topics as the causes of the financial crisis, the morality of capitalism, ending the growth of the state and U.S. foreign policy. Let's welcome Dr. Yaron Brook. Thank you. So I hope you all appreciate uh, the weather I brought with me from California. <laughs> In spite of our tax rates, we get 300 days a year like this. So that's, that's why we're willing to be uh, whipped on a daily basis. So we're here to talk about capitalism. And you know, one of the great, one of the great mysteries uh, that all of us, I think, who, who fight for free markets and who uh, you know, energized by this idea that of, of capitalism and freedom and everything that that means. One of the great mysteries, I think, to all of us um, is the question of, uh, of why we're losing. Because we are losing. The world is rejecting our ideas, it's moving in the opposite direction. Statism is on the rise, primarily in the West. You know, Asia still hasn't figured this out yet, but they will learn soon enough. Um, and we are rejecting the, the, the tradition, the history, the ideas of capitalism, of freedom, of liberty. And you can see this, you can see this in politics. You can see it, it, in Obama administration in the US, government is on a growth spurt. I mean, it's, it's growing left and right. And yeah, people are challenging it, but even the people challenging it, they're challenging it on the little margins, on, on the little bit. I, I like to tell my Republican friends that, you know, a long time ago, uh, after the Great Depression, they said, oh, when we get into power, we're going to repeal everything FDR did. And then they gave up on that. But then after the Johnson administration, right, the Great Society, and Johnson brought the United States welfare and Medicare and Medicaid and all that stuff, the Republicans said, oh, when we get into power, we're going to repeal the Great Society. And of course, most Republicans, when they get into power, they add on to the Great Society. They make it bigger, not any smaller. Right? So they're tinkering with the ledgers. They're still on the same path. If you look at American history, it doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who's in the House or the Senate. Government grows. Government programs grows. Redistribution of wealth grows. Regulations grow. You know, don't let anybody tell you that the financial crisis happened because of deregulation under Bush. Because there was no deregulation under Bush. I want to name one deregulation under Bush. I do these debates on the financial crisis, and I always ask, what deregulation? And they go, uh, there is none. But it doesn't matter. You know, it grows. Europe, we're seeing, seeing what's happening in Europe. You know, they're, they're facing a, a dramatic crisis. They're going bankrupt. And they're holding on to those state benefits. They are holding on to the regulatory infrastructure for dear life. They are not giving up on that stuff. You know, Greece and Spain, because they're forced to, are making small changes at the small margins. And at the same time, increasing taxes to screw the people who actually make the stuff, who actually build the stuff, right? Because that's how they're going to get the economies out of, out of, uh, out of trouble. Okay. 
we are losing. Capitalism is in decline in the Western world. And we have to ask ourselves why. And we have to really do soul searching around this because it shouldn't be losing. <laughs> we should be winning. This is the greatest social, political, economic system in human history. Right? People forget 250 years ago, everybody was poor. Everybody. Except like 1%, the aristocrats, you know, who robbed us blind and were, were rich. Everybody was poor. And there were a lot fewer of us. Under that regime, most of us in this room are dead. Right? How did America, the United States of America, be, go from being a third-rate colony? Americans love this when I tell them they were a third-rate colony. The only reason they won the War of Independence was because the British didn't think they were important enough. But it's true. They were too busy fighting the Spanish and the French and other stuff, right? They went from a third-rate colony to being the mightiest economic military country in human history within 130, 40 years. And is it an accident that that is the period of greatest freedom, economic freedom in human history? So it worked. They tried this for 140 years. We tried this and it worked, right? In a sense. You could look at the last 250 years as a giant experiment in which political social systems work and which don't. Right? So we tried capitalism in the United States, or approaching capitalism. It wasn't an ideal system, and there were horrible things about what they did in the 19th century, slavery being the obvious one. But generally, there was more economic freedom in America during the 19th century than in any other country during any other century ever. And the success is astounding. So we tried that. And we tried communism, right? We tried the other side. We tried statism to its fullest, fascism and communism. And I put those together on purpose, right? And what was the result? Poverty, destruction, and death. And let nobody tell you anything different. Poverty, destruction, and death. That's the consequence of, of socialism. So I don't buy, I don't buy that there's anybody in the world out there who is intelligent and educated who doesn't know deep down somewhere that capitalism works. There's no way you can't know this because it's right there in front of your face. So this is the puzzle, right? This is the mystery. We're losing, that's, a, that's the reality. We have reality on our side, we have history on our side, we have fact on our side, and they're obvious, and we have theory on our side. The economic theory is there, it's solid. Right? And we're still losing. <laughs> What's going on here? So what is it about capitalism? What is it about these free markets that is so, you know, just gets us at the gut and causes us immediately to tell oh, there's something wrong with that? And you can see it if you go out into this university, go out over there and ask people about capitalism. And it's an emotional response. They don't even have time to really think it through. It's a, it's a negative, right? right? It's very, very emotional, very Guttural. What is it about capitalism? What is capitalism about? What are markets? Any market. What is a market about? What do people do in a marketplace? They exchange, but they exchange for what purpose? Why are they exchanging? Yeah, so, so why, why does somebody make one of these? Right? Why does Steve Jobs make an iPhone? To sell it. Sell it for what? Because he loves people? Does he care about me? When he, when he builds one of these, is he thinking, oh, you're on 
I really like Iran, I want to make him an iPhone. <laughs> I mean, if he did, then why charge me 60% profit margin? What's he trying to do? Make money. Make money. See, you're even a little uncomfortable with that. <laughs> it is, you are. I know. And when I, I should have said this earlier, but when I mean capitalism, I mean capitalism. I mean freedom. Freedom from what? We say freedom, but freedom for what? What are we free of? Coercion, right? We're free of coercion. That's what freedom means. It means freedom from coercion. It means freedom from people forcing you to do things you don't want to do. I do believe that Ayn Rand did not solve the problem of ethics, did not uh, figure out how to get the ought from the is, right? So the central problem was identified by David Hume in the 18th century. He was a Scottish uh, Enlightenment philosopher and a chunky fellow. A uh, central problem from, uh, that was identified by David Hume was that you cannot get a should from an is. You can't get an ought from an is. Right? Life is a process of self-sustaining and self-generated action. If an organism fails in that action, it dies. Its chemical elements remain, but its life goes out of existence. It is only the concept of life that makes the concept of value possible. It is only to a living entity that things can be good or evil. I think that's a leap. I have to disagree. To put it mildly, it would be a leap to believe that good and evil mean anything to a dead person. Likewise, nothing can be of value to a dead man or a dead entity. Good and value have no meaning except to a living human being. And that's why in Rand's philosophy, one's own life is one's own highest value. It's the primary value. You cannot have any other value unless you're first alive. No, you do not have to live. It is your basic act of choice. But if you choose to live, you must live as a man by the work and judgment of your mind. Well, I guess that's true, but the work and judgment of your mind might be to dominate all those around you and steal their stuff, right? Which is what some people love to do. It makes them very happy, right? So, and again, this is the challenge that philosophers face, that evil people do very well. Genghis Khan, uh, Saddam Hussein, I mean, yeah, okay, he died, uh, he was hung, and, and Hitler killed himself, but... Um, they obviously preferred the life that they had, right? As Saddam Hussein lived in palaces, he had free run of the entire country, he got to do whatever he wanted. Uh, so evil sociopaths do a lot better. A dictator, no doubt, feels a great deal of pleasure. They may kill someone and feel a great rush of adrenaline, a sense of power. They may feel pleasure. That's not the same as being happy. This isn't about looking for Freudian this or Freudian that, as you're referring to in your video. This is a, a simple distinction between sensation on the one hand and cognition on the other. It's widely acknowledged. It's a, you know, in, in psychology, in philosophy, those two things are entirely different matters. One is largely automatic and sensory, autonomic process, if you want. The other is a product of cognition. The fact that Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler or um, any of these folks experience pleasure does not mean, maybe because they're driving around in a car and they like the feeling of their leather seat or the smell of their cigar or whatever, those, they're all very pleasurable things. That doesn't mean they're happy. When we're talking about happiness, we're talking about the achievement of values. That's what Rand is referring to by the word happiness. If you want to equate pleasure and happiness, then you're, in fact, folding together the cognitive and the sensory. 
And that's a distinction that Rand made and that you would not be making if that's what you're doing. She says, no, you do not have to live as a man. It is an act of moral choice, but you cannot live as anything else. But that's, that's not true even, even within her own writing, right? So the, the bad people get... Uh, they have generations. She talks about generations of the moochers that lead to the catastrophes in the novel Atlas Shrugged, but they all did very well. Thank you very much, right? Now, at this point in your video, you leave one with the impression that perhaps you haven't even read Atlas Shrugged. I don't mean that to be rude. I'm sure you have read it. I mean, you're reading a speech right from the book. The Galt speech is from Atlas Shrugged. But a dictator does not, despite doing very well, quote-unquote, or feeling all kinds of pleasure, does not achieve any values at all. Not by being a dictator. Not by enslaving others. Not by stealing their property. That is not the achievement of values. That's the whole point of the book. The point of Atlas Shrugged was to demonstrate that these people who are doing quite well, thank you, who are experiencing pleasure as heads of, you know, train companies and etc., but are not acting rationally, are, you know, acting emotionally, or acting by social climbing and etc. The point of the book is to show that they are not achieving anything at all and that their lives depend entirely upon the rationality and productiveness of others. And the point of the story was, look what happens when the productive, when the rational, withdraw their services from the rest of society, from irrational society. Their very survival at that point is at risk. They're, they're likely to die unless they become rational, unless they start to act rational themselves. The dictators that you speak about are not people who are achieving values. They are people who are looting or mooching those values from others, as are any other irrational folks. People who try to get by on mooching and looting in many other ways. Social climbing and other social metaphysicians. Those are not people who are achieving values, even if they're doing very well, quote-unquote. It does not mean they're achieving values. They might be sens uh, sensing pleasure. It does not mean they're achieving happiness. The life of a dictator or other irrational person is entirely dependent upon the, the lives and productivity of rational people. Apart from being human, they aren't really even man. They are more parasite. If they, if they weren't human, we would call them parasitical. We would call them parasites. A person who chooses not to think is choosing to let other people's decisions be the determinant of whether or not uh, he lives or dies. He's choosing to live as a baby or as a, as a, a kept animal. But he's not choosing to live. He's choosing to let other people decide whether or not to let him live. The only thing that will allow such a person to continue living is the sanction of his victims. The whole point of Atlas Shrugged was what happens when they no longer sanction their own victimization? What happens when they shrug off that role that, that's been imposed upon them by those who refuse to think to themselves? The point of, of Atlas Shrugged is that if people around this dictator or around these irrational people decide suddenly to be thoroughly rational and moral, They'll withdraw their services. They won't allow their property to be taken. They won't allow their lives to be, uh, or their liberty to be restrained. They won't allow their lives to be taken. They'll go away. They'll shrug. They'll withdraw their services. If the irrational, if the sociopaths attempt to take life, liberty, and property from those who are trying to withdraw it, if they try to take it by force, if they try to take those things by force, <laughs> the response from a rational person is not verbal. It's ballistic. Force, defensive physical force, is the righteous response to a sociopath. 
we don't judge our philosophy by whether that sociopath responds to, you know, moral words. And we aren't required to hand over our life, liberty, and property simply because that person doesn't understand or doesn't want to agree uh, that our philosophy is sound. If they don't want to live a rational life, if they choose to try to live by being parasitical on the rational, <laughs> there's only one solution in a rational world. They die. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I think you've answered what my next question was going to be, and that is, what's the difference between the Capitalist Party and the Libertarian Party? Of course, liberty is in their name. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I stand on the same ground as uh, most objectivists in this respect, but I think libertarians don't understand the purpose of liberty, and that's why they don't like the state and don't understand how the state relates to maintaining a, the condition of liberty. But they take it as a moral axiom as opposed to a corollary to something else. You need to be free because you need to be rational. You need to be rational so that you can live. And so they think liberty is doing anything you want, but really liberty is the restraint of hum other humans in a social scenario so that you can be free to think and to live your life. And so I think that may be a subtle distinction between libertarians. I don't know so much between objectivists that we understand what that means, but libertarians <laughs> still don't quite get that that's a distinction that I'm making that makes us very different from their own party. There are libertarian parties in Canada as well, provincial and federal. But my understanding of these parties, and I've looked into them a bit, is that they're a big tent party. They mm -hmm. take anarcho-capitalists, they take the socialists, they take the anti-establishmentarians, they take any disaffected conservatives, they take disaffected liberals, all socialists, and all they really are are anarchists. They don't see a value for the state. They don't see a value for government. They don't see a value for control. Or, and this is what you were talking about earlier, for morality. Because all they look at is superficially the least government, the best, without any sort of understanding as to why we need a government or a state to begin with. Matter of fact, in, in the platform of the Capitalist Party, it's explained uh, as well, the government is a benefit that um, applies to everybody equally, and therefore they must be funded, something the libertarians may have uh, a bit of a problem with. That's another thing. They don't believe in objective morality. So there's no such thing as universal objective rules, universally applicable ethics, universally applicable laws that could govern agreements or mitigate conflict. Uh, none of that makes any sense to them. It's a shame, really, because a lot of them are very nice people. I know a lot of them are libertarians, but when they get down to it, it's just as if they don't want to be told that there is an objective reality, that there are objective means of determining what your values are. Mm -hmm. So morality tells us, no, your life is not owned by somebody else. You do not owe them. Their need is not a claim against you. Your life is yours to live as you see fit in pursuit of the values you think will lead to your own happiness, in pursuit of the things that you believe are going to make you a successful person, a flourishing person. And it's that morality that we, if we believe in capitalism, if we want the goodies that capitalism provides, that is the morality we need to fight for. And if we don't, we don't get capitalism. If we stick to the old moral code, we will get the old political system. We will get 
the same statism. You will not get capitalism under a regime, under a moral regime that believes that your life is not yours to live. That your life, you owe it to others. Everybody in capitalism in the marketplace is out for their self-interest. That's why we exchange. That's why we're in the marketplace. Capitalism is the system of the pursuit of self-interest. That's what it is. But what do we know about self-interest? It's evil. It's bad. I mean, I was taught when this big, right? What's, what's morality about? What's ethics? What's goodness? What's virtue? Nobility? What are they about? Self-interest? No, they're about sacrifice. About being selfless. About serving others. About doing what's good for the community or your neighbor or your brother or whoever. It's not about you. That's what every preacher for the last 200 years has told us. What every philosopher for the last 200 years has told us. The purpose of your life is to serve. Be selfless. Who are moral? Moral heroes. Our moral heroes are people who give everything up and go and serve the cause. Some cause bigger than themselves, right? That's John McCain's language from the... Right? Don't serve your own interests. Serve something bigger than you. The state, your religion, your neighbors, something. Don't be small-minded and just about you. But that's what capitalism is. It's small-minded. It's all about me. We're about, you know, selflessness. Morality says that selflessness is good. And by, def by necessity, what does that mean? Selfish is, or self-interest is. Self-interest is what? Is bad. What are, what, are, what are we taught that self-interest is like? When you point to the kid in the, in the back of the playground and you say, oh, that kid's selfish. You mean he's rationally considering what's good for himself and he's going to work hard to make his life the best that it can be? <laughs> no, what do you mean? He's going he's gonna to lie, steal, cheat, stab people in the back to do anything that gets his way. So now you've got a choice in life. Morality teaches you. You've got a choice in life. You can be self-interested, which means bad, which means lying, stealing, cheating, by every definition, bad. Or you can be selfless and good. Those are the two options. And guess what, what political economic system being selfless is consistent with? Yeah, is it, is it consistent with everybody pursuing their own self-interest? Is it consistent with win-win transactions of trade? No, because all these people are self-interested. And what do we know self-interest is? Lying, cheating, stealing. So it can't be win-win. Somebody's deceiving us. The good guys, the guys who think about society, think about what's good for other people. Right? Mother Teresa, that's goodness. Bureaucrats, they're good because they're public servants. They don't think about themselves. <laughs> right? I mean, that's funny in many, ways, many reasons for why that's funny. All human values at the end of the day come from our ability to reason. That is the way in which we survive and it's the way in which we thrive. So if you really care about yourself, which is what being self-interested means, it means taking care of self, making your own life your highest priority, then the first thing you need to do is cultivate your mind, is cultivate your reason, cultivate your rational ability, and pursue rational values in order to make your life the best life that it can be. So what Rand is saying is, no, morality is about 
how to pursue your own self-interest. What are the virtues that you should try to gain, that you should try to live up to in order to achieve your self-interest? That's what the study, the science of morality should be about. Not about how to sacrifice, not about how to defeat yourself, not about how to live for other people. Why? My life's mine. It's about how to make my life the best life that it can be. And if you want to live the best life that it can be, that you can have, do you want government sitting on your shoulder telling you what you can and cannot do? How to run your life, how to run your business, what to do, what not to do? No, you want to go out there and explore. You want to go out there and live. You want to go out there and pursue values. And you might fail. But if you're rational, what happens when you fail? You learn from it and you rise up. If you're poor and you believe in the value of your own life, do you want a check from somebody else every month? Do you want to live off of somebody else's production? No. You don't want that. You want to know that you are capable of producing enough to take care of yourself. That's how we get self-esteem. How does self-esteem, how do we get self-esteem in life? Earning. From achieving stuff. Overcoming from overcoming challenges. From setting goals and achieving them. If you don't set goals, you don't get self-esteem. And without self-esteem, you can never, ever be happy. This sort of verbal chaos, this unintelligible scramble of political terms, which denies that controls are controls and pays lip service to freedom, is typical of fascism. An intellectual coup d'etat would consist of the following keep switching the meaning of political concepts until they dissolve in an unintelligible fog, get people conditioned subliminally to accept the implications of the doctrines you would not dare proclaim explicitly, then let them wake up some morning to a fait accompli, to the astonished realization why everybody knows that freedom is slavery and that Americanism is statism. dipped under 4,000 points today. You've seen in the stock, stock market's volatility. It's violent wealth loss. It's bad for the rich people. Can you imagine how bad it is for me and you? Good evening, America. I'm Jay Knight. Our nation is slipping deeper and deeper into a crisis never seen before. Oil and gas shortages have crippled manufacturing and transportation across... While conflicts in the Mideast have virtually cut off all oil imports to the United States. Are, are you saying that the American people aren't taking care of their own country? Global states oil corporations suffered yet another major spill off the Gulf Coast. We're seeing an unprecedented, totally okay. unexpected And as a result, collapse. rail travel has re-emerged as the only affordable means of freight and passenger transportation. 
Speaker, we would like to propose a bill to make it illegal to fire employees from profitable corporations. Our government has put a moratorium on all wage increases and recently passed the Fair Price Bill, restricting increases in the price of most goods and services. This is your wake-up call, America. Another government relief ship was hijacked late last night by pirate Ragnar Danishkul. Violence and crime are skyrocketing throughout the nation. Do you think that, um, you know, when art imitates life, uh, I've come to a real realization, and I'll make this my last question, Mark, because I know that your time is short, but as art imitates life, I've in my years, and I'm gray. I have seen myself enjoy things like these TV shows where you have good guys and bad guys fight it out. And I thought that that was just entertainment. That was a way of expressing some of our darker emotions in scripts and in stories played by actors so that we could be entertained. But the reality of today is that it doesn't hold a candle to reality. What's going on in Hollywood on the, on the silver screen and in television, all of these nasty, nasty things that we see on the screen don't compare to what I have experienced personally and, and know to be happening throughout the world. Is art driving this nonsense or is it reflecting it? I mean, Andrew Breitbart said that politics is downstream from culture, but culture, I think, is being driven to, to meet up with reality, and reality is not very pleasant for a lot of people in the world. Your thoughts? I, I think the culture is sort of the, the sum of a group's knowledge and ethics and creativity, and I think it's... <sighs> This is a really tough question because uh, I, I, I do think in, in, when it comes to film, the film is reflecting the cultural trends that are going out there now, that are going on now. I don't know that it's driving it. I think academics have driven it and, and, and pundits have driven it and people who are responsible for the ideas are driving it. And the, the, the culture, as far as film is concerned, is just re reflecting more or less the chaos out there, the moral chaos and the sense of uh, alienation and um, lack of direction, unclarity about pretty much everything. So I, and, and I, don't, think, I don't think Hollywood is capable of, of driving anything, to, no. to be honest with you. So uh, I think us as ob we as objectivists just have to start intervening in there and, and placing our own ideas in there, not the way the conservatives are. You know, the conservatives like um, uh, Ben Shapiro have, have created their own media out outlets, uh, a subscription media forum where they produce the sort of movies and television that they want to see, but they're, they're very hokey and... and um, they don't have the dynamicism of some of this other stuff, which even though 
a lot of it's nihilistic and reflecting stuff that's ugly, like the Joker, for example, it's still extremely well done on every level of filmmaking is superb. Um, now that's what our side needs to, to uh, contribute to the culture. And, and I think our ideas are so much more powerful and fulfilling that they'll eventually, eventually win. Uh, there is a production right now of Atlas Shrugged that we've been trying to produce for the last year and a half now. Um, Jacqueline Schumann and Jennifer Buani have written a great series. A it's a reimagining. Uh, the, the philosophy, of course, is totally intact and amazing, but I think it's a reimagining in a way that will touch non-objectivists. It's It made me laugh. It made me cry. It, it made me feel exalted. It's, it's, a, it's a great piece of television and we've been trying to get it up for the last year and a half. So hopefully that can happen and that can start, um, start this process of reversing, reversing, or, or at least reflecting different aspects of the culture that can you know, turn things around a little bit. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the way to go. I, I remember when, um, Rand once said that when she sees her, her um, philosophy in a comic book, she knows she would have succeeded or something to that effect. And then mm. you had uh, Ditko come out with, what was it, Mr. A. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, so I, I think she was successful in that. But, and, you, and you see it permeate every now and then throughout um, the culture, not just Hollywood and television, but uh, in art and, and theater as well. So on that positive note that we can expect maybe an Atlas Shrug to come out, I thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. Likewise. And remember, you can watch the entire discussion between Mark and Robert on Just Right's video platforms. And also remember that you can join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and hey, be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. <laughs> Fine, uh, a party political? Yeah, now a party political spells instant boredom. I think it should be a ministerial broadcast, you know, the prime minister addressing his people. But I'll do it into the camera like a party political. Have you done much talking to camera? You know, it's mostly been interviews and things. Ah, well, in that case, I'd better set up a practice session. Fine. Uh, just one thing, what is the broadcast to be about? About. Uh, <laughs> yes, about. What will it be about? About me. <laughs> yes, but what are you going to say? Say? <laughs> yes, uh, about policies. Oh, policies? Yes, well, I thought it would be the usual thing, you know. Go forward together, better tomorrow. Tighten your belt, all pull together. Heal the wounds, that sort of thing. Yes, but what will you be saying specifically? Oh, specifically? Uh, well, I thought I'd suggest that we all specifically tighten our belts. <laughs> specifically heal the specific wounds in society. See what I mean? Yes, well, of course, it's entirely up to you, Prime Minister. I just thought if you had anything uh, new to say. Oh. <laughs> oh, new? Yes, of course. Get Humphrey back here, will you? My grand design. That's what I wanted to talk to Humphrey about. Ah, Sir Humphrey, the Prime Minister is making arrangements for his TV broadcast. He wants to talk about his grand design and wonders if you... I think he's on his way. <laughs>